so long See you around Seen all I want to see of this town I'm out of town and I'm out of tears Out of my mind and I'm out of here Who needs a heartache, baby? Who needs a pain? Who needs to hang around and take the blame? Who needs a woman to make him blue? Who needs you, baby? I do Sure makes it hard to walk away I gotta go, I can't take this abuse Why are you smiling, but I lie to you Who needs a heartache, baby, who needs the pain Who needs to hang around and take the blame Who needs a woman to make him blue Who needs you, baby, I do Welcome to the Tom Dupree Show. This week, joining us at Darst Mashru, Mike Johnson, our host, Tom Dupree. There's been a lot going on in the economy, so I know it's going to be an information-packed show. Okay, this is by a guy named Clay Walker, who's from Beaumont, Texas. Turn it up. All right, now that, all the way up, go up higher. That is a Johnny Lee... Gillies in Pasadena, Texas sound. I'm telling you, that's what that is. That is a very Texas sound. You got the pedal steel in the background and a fiddle. It is a very cultivated. You won't hear that from somebody in Tennessee. It's going to be more mandolins and stuff like that. That's. You've got it turned way down, honey. I, I wanted it a little louder, but that's okay. Well, it's over now. Yeah. So. But here's the thing. The thing that you need to know is that within country music, there are different strains. There are different. It's almost like dialects. This guy, Clay Walker, is from Beaumont. I've spent some time in Beaumont, Texas. Beaumont, Texas is in the absolute southeastern corner of Texas, just north of a even grotier place called Port Arthur. Uh, it's It was an oil field service center. They would bring the rigs, the big drilling rigs, out in the Gulf into uh, the Sabine River has a very wide uh, area there called Sabine Pass. The Sabine River runs down the Texas-Louisiana border. It, it's the border of East Texas and Louisiana. And when it comes into the Gulf, there's this massive open area of it called Sabine Pass where they bring the oil rigs in and work on them because, you know, they require that. So it's a very industrial place. It got hit hard by the oil downturn. Some of these um, uh, oil service companies we're trading in the single digits, barely paying their bills. So a lot of people got laid off. It's a, it's a blue-collar, industrial, in many ways, down-on-its-luck part of Texas. And so the music, to some degree, I mean, it's a very 
it's just interesting. And so this guy, he's continuing. George Jones is from Beaumont, ever or close to it, a little place called Colmanil. There was a guy named Mark Chestnut who's from there. So there's a whole kind of fraternity, and they sound different than George Strait, who they don't sound completely different, but he's got more of a Central Texas Hill Country sound. Now, how would I know this? Because I've listened to it. All right. <laughs> I just, I just, all I do is observe, you know, and, and after a while it starts making sense. Most people don't care what I'm saying, but I, for me, it's a game. I mean, it just is, you know, and then how anybody can make a living in the music business, they have to have their brand. Otherwise, you're not going to make it. It's a very tough business. I don't know how they do it. The only way they do it these days is by touring because you can't make any money selling CDs and having people rip you off on, you know, YouTube and start out with Napster. Or if you're established selling your your music portfolio like Justin Timberlake did, uh, Blackstone bought it and so you have to ask yourself how do they monetize that because i'm gonna tell you something back when they could sell albums for you know 14.99 that wouldn't have been 100 million that would have been 300 million but he sold it for 100 million because what you're selling is the annuity Mm -hmm. i remember when michael jackson when he was alive bought a big chunk of the beatles songbook for like 200 million and this was 30 years ago. Mm-hmm. So, uh, you know, now why do, you know, Justin Timberlake's got a few songs that I know about, but it's where the, the cash flows come. I mean, I would invest in something like that if I felt like I knew how to monetize it. Well, Bob Dylan did. Who, who were some of the, so yeah, Bob Dylan, Justin Timberlake. There was another big one in the last year. Uh, I forget who it was, but another one of them. Bob Dylan probably looking at a billion or something. I don't remember what he got for his, but it, it's it's the present value. I mean, it, it you, you think of somebody like Justin Timberlake at his age, that makes perfect sense. Is he 50? I don't think so. I think he's yeah. in his mid-40s probably. Okay, you know who... What rock and roll guy, this guy that I just played, plus several other country music guys say was a big influence on them? Mm. Just think a little bit. You're not thinking. (laughs) You got me. (laughs) Bob Seger. Really? Oh, yeah. Toby Keith. I saw an interview with him and uh, who's the guy that was in, you know, what you started you know uh van halen there you go yeah that's not what i was thinking it wasn't him it was somebody else sammy hagar david it was sammy hagar it was it was an interview with toby keith and sammy hagar and he talked about bob seger more than he did any other country musician well last week you played um jackson brown yeah and you listen to Jackson Brown and and the Eagles going hand in hand, but uh, Glenn Fry he was a rock guy before that, and he started sounding like Jackson Brown when they got. And that's the why Eagles. they brought in Joe Walsh because yeah. everybody thought they were turning into easy listening. Yeah, 
And and all they did is turn Joe Walsh into easy listening. <laughs> Would you agree? Yeah. Yeah. So anyway, how to face up to buying the dips. All right. If you look at the market and what's going on, as Elizabeth called it, the economy, um, it's, you know. And what is funny about that? <laughs> I don't know. I th- it's I, all I, economics. I gotta, I gotta find something funny about everything, you know. Okay, you know how I am. Laughing, the world okay. laughs with you. Yeah, right? exactly. So, the, it, if we look at the economy, the economy as dis, as measured by the stock market. So we've had this thing, and let's we all know this that so much of what goes on in any economy is psychological. Because thinking drives buying. Buying drives markets up or down, buying or selling. If you sell something, that's actually a buying decision. You're getting rid of your stock and you're buying cash. So you're buying cash with your stock or you're buying stock with your cash. It's either way. But it's always a it's always a buying decision, no matter what it is. Mm-hmm. And the thing of it is that it's psychologically subject to turning very quickly. You ever hated somebody so much you loved them? <laughs> I mean, Elizabeth. Oh my gosh. <laughs> Move along. <laughs> I didn't really mean to walk into that. But the point is the psychology turns very quickly and then people will be in denial about it for a while. It's like, oh no, that's not really happening. Let's go back to the narrative. The narrative's everything's supposed to be going lower. Because we've got a lot of print invested in that. But lo and behold, they become over-invested in the narrative, and it goes the other way. Your all's thoughts. I, I think that's, you know, uh, that's, that, that's true, and that happens time and again. We saw that just not that long ago. We saw that during uh, the COVID uh, drop. You know, where uh, the market dropped 35% very quickly and then the narrative became that, you know, the economy is going to completely shut down and this is terrible, this is the worst that we've ever seen. And uh, just a few months later, the narrative completely changed and everyone started piling onto uh, stocks, uh, so much so that in certain areas of the market, we had, you know, what you would call a, a bubble especially things like uh, SPACs and a few other tech stocks that just went public. So the narrative went from being extremely pessimistic to extremely optimistic. And then fast forward a year, you know, just recently the narrative, especially with those high growth tech stocks, became extremely negative, um, where some of those stocks dropped 70, 80% or 90% from their peak. So the narrative changes, and as you said, it's all driven by psychology. So when, you know, the psychology uh, shifts from, uh, you know, being negative to being positive, people start buying, 
and vice versa. So that's that's really what drives markets, at least in the near term. Now you could say in the longer run, you know, valuations and fundamentals drive market, but in the near term, it's all psychology. Yeah, and psychology is thinking, and thinking is what drives actions. Yeah, well, and this year it started out. I mean. The narratives are always shaped by fundamentals short term, but then the narrative kind of gets a life of its own, and then and then that drives a momentum one way or the other. Because I mean, you look at uh, you know these tech stocks, the valuations that they had coming in to the new year, and then you start having interest rates go up. That was the point where the narrative changed based on fundamentals, um, but that narrative right. changed. Uh, and then it just kind of fed on itself, it kept getting worse and worse and worse. Um, and it gets to the point where all that bad news is, is priced in, but the narrative is still continuing. But the market realizes that possibly the bad news or that it's been overdone on the upside or the downside. And that's where it changes quickly. And that's that's the mistake that people make is – trying to time the market because uh, a week ago you couldn't find a positive article anywhere um, now you're starting to see some come out but you know we've been this week you know the market will be up you know four percent the Dow will be up about four percent this week um, so you, you, now that doesn't mean it's going to continue next week I mean, it could um, but if you were trying to time the market you got out at the the height of bad news and the everything that was coming out. You get out at the height of that, waiting for that to bottom. Well, then the market turns right in your face, and so then that that's the the fool's errand of trying to time the market. Perfect. Now let's look at interest rates. So remember, was it three four years ago? Everybody said the 10 years going back to 4%. All the major brokerage firms put out pieces. What to do in a rising interest rate environment? Buy bond ladders. You know, you've got a little bit maturing each year. So ladder your maturities. One year, two year, three year, four year. Have bonds coming off every year. Wow, what a new idea. I mean, those have been around for a long time. But they act like it's, oh, we just thought of this. Um, then, um, bring it up to, to, te- to, de- to today. And the one driving the narrative is the fed. Uh, well, we're going to raise interest rates six times over the next year. I don't recall ever hearing the fed lay it out for you that far into the future. Under Volcker, under Greenspan, even under Bernanke, it would be more of a stealth move. Sometimes it would be between meetings. They come out and raise interest rates fifty basis points in a intermeeting drop one day. Totally catch the market up off balance. We live in a more highly bureaucratized top heavy world today than we even had five to 10 years ago. The fed now 
is this big body made up of more and more appointees based on social justice, race, gender, nothing to do with economic background. It's more, uh, it's more va- uh, virtue signaling as to who the body of the Fed is. I mean, this guy in Atlanta, Raphael Bostic, they quote him all the time, probably because he's black. He makes these statements that just bear no relationship. He acts like he's speaking for the Fed chairman sometimes. The guy in Dallas, uh, I'm trying to think, uh, he was replaced. But now they act like, you know, we're the ones driving the economy. And the fact is, they're talking about four more hikes, maybe five. And the 10-year has already rallied from a 3.11% down to 2.74. Why is it if the Fed says we need higher interest rates that the market does the other thing? Why? Because you cannot superimpose your value system and your narrative on top of a living, breathing, dynamic market made of people but not only do they not learn this they're doubling down on the proposition that interest rates can be controlled therefore seems to me that somebody that decides these people are not as smart as they're being sold to us as can actually do pretty well if you just look between the lines and the between the lines is sometimes eight feet. There's a lot of daylight in there and say, you know, we should be doing this because they're all doing this. Yeah. So, I mean, you know, the, the, the fed has become, you know, it used to be that it was what the fed did that mattered. And now it's what the fed says i guess that's the market takes its uh, at least has been taking its cue from that uh now whether that's a good thing or not that you know obviously the market listened to the fed last year when the fed said that inflation is temporary and it kept bidding up prices and then all of a sudden the fed uh backtracked and the market panicked that's Um, one place where i actually think the fed might have been right they were a little right. longer right. wrong, but now uh, it's possible that inflation, we've seen the worst. It is just because, you know, uh, a lot of the inflation that we saw uh, was dri- driven by supply factors, uh, which can correct themselves. They do tend to correct, correct themselves eventually, even in the uh 70s and 80s there were supply factors that were driving inflation and when i say supply factors i mean that you know if there's a shortage of commodities or if a certain commodity is just not getting from point a to point b then yes that's a problem that can raise prices of that increase prices of that commodity but eventually people will figure out a way to you know make it uh, go from point a to point b so uh ultimately uh you know, we are, we are starting to see the inflation figure just came out this morning and there are signs that inflation is moderating. Uh, b- 
but will it moderate and go back to what it was, you know, in the last decade where it ran between 1 and 2% or or is there is today's inflation benchmark a little higher uh just because we have shortages not only in commodities but also in labor and uh uh you know there there's deglobalization going on. You look at you're talking about commodities, you look at uh, some fertilizer inputs, uh, I think ammonia uh prices are down about 30% from their peak. Now, they're still elevated about 86% from a year ago, but 30% here recently. So you're, you're starting to see some of these right. pieces start to Yeah, but ga- gas has gone through the roof. Natural Na- gas. Natural gas. Yeah, it's, it's, it's around 850 right now. So, I mean, I don't know. That's, an in, that's a big input in. Uh, uh, what did it get up to, though? Got up to nine, nine, nine yes, something. Yeah. Yes, just last week it was over nine, and uh, today it dropped about six, seven percent in the morning, and now it's down. Now it's around eight sixty or so. Yeah, but so the, go ahead. I was just gonna say, but su- supply chains can fix themselves relatively quickly um, if if all the pieces fall in line. <laughs> Where did that come from? I like that. What, the Bob Seger? You said play Bob Seger no, going out. I didn't so. say that. Oh, okay, you didn't I didn't say. mean it. You wrote it on a note to me. Turn so it up. That's good. We're going to get out of here for this segment. You're listening to the Tom Dupree Show with the Darsh Meshroom, Mike Johnson, and Tom Dupree. We'll be back She's in just a few me. minutes. No blame. Stay tuned. You can see how you could get country out of that. Well, I lost my heart on the day we met, but I gained a lot that I don't regret. Then I hung around till you said I'd do. I knew I wouldn't have nothing if I didn't have you. Well, it changed my thinking when you changed your name And neither one of us will ever be the same And I swear I'm never gonna be untrue Cause I wouldn't have nothing if I didn't have you If I didn't have you, I'd long ago been left in the dark out in the cold Blowing around from town to town like a feather Didn't have you, I know I'd be Floundering around like a ship at sea Lost in the rain of a hurricane And that's where I'd have been But I didn't get lost cause I saw your light Shining like a beacon on a cold dark night Then the sun came up and the skies turned blue No, I wouldn't have nothing if I didn't have Welcome back to the Tom Dupree Show for the second half of the second hour. Joining us, a Darsh Mashroom, Mike Johnson, our host, Tom Dupree. Okay, this is Randy Travis, who came from, originally from uh, North Carolina. Now, he came up the gospel route, uh, singing in church choir, uh, and, and that was kind of his shtick. And then he began to... Um, 
get into other things. He's been in, I think, several movies. He's, he's an actor also. Moved to Texas. i tell you a funny story. Back about 1989, I, I got to know this guy, and I used to hear him talk. And I swear I thought he was from somewhere in Texas. And uh, first time I ever talked to him, I said, so where about in Texas are you from? Because I thought I had his uh, accent pinpointed. He says, I'm not from Texas. I said, where are you from? He said, Charlotte, North Carolina. It, it just, I said, no, you're not. No, nope, you're not from North Carolina. He said, yeah, I am. I really am. And don't say I'm not anymore because he played football. And I said, all right, you're from Charlotte. But you sure sound like you're from somewhere else because he didn't sound like but the point is, and I'm not sure what the point is, that it, it, it's, <laughs> it, it's, you know, accents, people. Anyway, Randy Travis sounded like he's from Texas, and he ends up moving there. So we'll leave it that. Uh, <laughs> I don't know what I'm saying. How to face up to buying the dips. So one of the things that I saw a lot of articles about is buying the dip doesn't work anymore. How many articles did you see that said that? Oh, yeah. I, I know I saw several. Buy, buy, buying the dip's dead. All, buying all the this. dip's yeah. dead. Yeah. All this. Yeah. Here's the thing. I, first question is, who writes this stuff? <laughs> because they must just have to have a deadline and an article. So yeah. if you rely on the quote, financial press to advise you on how you manage your portfolio, you better be real careful. That's right. This is a game, if you will, that you can only learn by playing. And, and I'm not saying I've learned it. I've, I've watched people who have, and they don't get their advice from reading uh, the Wall Street Journal or the financial press. I can already see um, how they're going to, you know, change this. Well, buying the dip is dead. This wasn't a dip. This was a drop. You know, change, you know, semantics. Um, And we don't know. I mean, the what's happening this week, it could reverse next week. We we don't know. Um, Didn't the market narrowly avoid dropping into, quote, bear market territory? So technically it did, and then it reversed the same day. Right. That doesn't Friday. count then because it didn't close down there. Right. But, uh, again, these are just technicalities. Now, certain right. areas of the market have already gone into deep Way into deep yeah. bear markets. Yeah. NASDAQ, yeah. yeah. Right. 20, I think it was 27% right. it yeah. dropped. Um, Some stocks are down 70%. Right. They're still down 50 you know, or more, way more than 50 Yeah. But even, even the notion of something like buy the dip, it's 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 almost like one of those one decision kind of it fits all uh, kind of <laughs> general things that you know, they try to sell. I mean, even that notion in and of itself isn't accurate because buying the dip. I mean, you you'd be 
digging your own grave buying the dip. I mean, you buy something and there's a problem with whatever it is you're buying. You don't want to buy the dip. You want to sell the dip if there's a problem with it. Um, and, and so it all comes back to what do you own? Why do you own it? What's your time frame? What's your plan? Everything fits together, but nothing in investing or portfolio management or a long-term investment plan, none of that is a one decision uh, decision. (laughs) Um, Everything you have to constantly uh, go back and test and and reevaluate uh, where everything is. Um, you know, it, it's like um, you look back at long term averages of the of the stock markets. Um, that in and of itself can be misleading. Uh, you look absolutely. At, you say, okay, the S and P five hundred historically has averaged nine percent. Well, a it, it, in short periods we know that it can be extremely volatile. Um, so it can you, bankrupt you. It, yeah, an average nine percent can bankrupt you. It's like standing on a mountain, and you look at this mountain over there that's five miles away, and say, "Oh, that's easy. I can get over there." Yeah, you don't know what's between you and that mountain because yeah. you really can't see it from that mountaintop. That's right. But there's could be stuff in there that it's almost impossible to get across. That's right. And so let's say, let's, okay, facts that, yes, over a long period of time, the S&P 500 has averaged about 9%. Um, but think of where we are today. We've been in a market, even with the drop that we've had this year, that's that has grown at a much faster rate than its long-term average. If if you believe in a reversion to the mean, that it does go back to that roughly 9% average, that would mean over the next X length of period, length of time, you're going to have negative returns or below average returns to get back to that point. And so if you're entering retirement, getting close to retirement, if you're taking a distribution from a pool of funds, you have to be very careful and have a have a plan, not just on how it's invested, but you better have a spending plan too. Know where your money's coming from. Know what your budget is. Know where you have flexibility. Because um, the whole idea of, of an investment plan long term isn't just the investments themselves. It's also your personal responsibilities of saying, where do I have flexibility? Can I cut spending during this period if this event happens? It, the whole thing's dynamic. Um, and that, that's the importance when we say, you know, have a, a dynamic, robust, long-term plan. It encompasses all these various elements. But you got to be robust and nimble. That's it. <laughs> Now, I think that, I don't know. I think that it requires a measure of critical thinking that is almost genetic. (laughs) I don't think this is made for everybody. It's like some people are never going to be good golfers. Some people are not going to be good... um, Gardeners. Now, Charlie Munger believes 
And when he's gone, and it won't be long, his life, I think in some ways I would study his writings as much, if not more, than the writings of Warren Buffett. One of the things that Charlie Munger advises people to do is study and participate in lots of different models, as he calls them, of life. If you like to do this, try to learn how to do this. It may be something entirely different than what you've ever done. When I was 19 years old, I got it in my head I wanted to be a doctor. I got a job at Central Baptist Hospital. Uh, You do what they tell you to do. The job was in the operating room. That was a plum job for somebody that was pre-med. But I got to do some things that were not something anybody would want to do. Prepare people for surgery. That means shaving. (laughs) It was uh, interesting. You don't want to nick anybody. I got to where I could do it in my sleep. There were things that, I learned that you learn that you develop muscle memory to do that broadens your way of thinking. It it, it opens up things in your brain, corpuscles or whatever they are, you know, neurons, where you think outside of what you're used to. It's painful at first. But now I try to do it in everything because more models will help me learn more, and that is good to help you in investing. That's true. And uh, I mean, the way the modern uh, education system has become, it's all about specializing now, you know. Uh, whereas it used to be that um, students, people were exposed to all kinds of different disciplines with the same for the same reason that you just described. Uh, that, you know, perhaps the... The mind has uh, the ability to, you know, uh, by broadening one's horizons, you know, it makes you better overall at, you know, certain disciplines. So um, uh, I I am a big believer in that. So is Charlie Munger. And uh, there's really no book that he has written, but there is a book that compiles a lot of his thoughts and ideas. Yeah, that's what I was thinking. It's like a Ben Franklin type. Yeah, it's called... Poor Charlie's Almanac. Uh, it's it's available on Amazon, uh, but uh, that that is a great book. And uh, he, you Darsh has like six copies of it. <laughs> Actually, I just have one uh, that is autographed by Charlie Munger. Uh, so there, bam. That's worth six. Yeah. yeah. So Charlie Munger is coming up on ninety nine, I think. Right. Yeah. Um. I like to think about people that you wouldn't normally think of as financial types, you know, to, 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 to get, to, to have for ideas and and things. Sometimes you don't get your ideas from the, the places you think you should get them from like a report turned out by a CFA guy at a, major investment bank. Not that there's anything wrong with that, but there can be. (laughs) 
because sometimes investment firm research is tainted by politics and or that firm's uh, investment banking relationship with the company they're reviewing and things like that. So I've always somewhat favored what you might even call amateur research over professional research. And if you're going to go with professional research, I like the research that's unbiased, free of any other entanglements uh, that might. Uh, and now they say, well, we don't, you know, we completely divorce those things. And, and by law, they're supposed to. But uh, I'm not absolutely certain that it's always the case. Then there, with the big uh, firms, you get these narratives. Today, it's ESG. I forgot what it stands Environmental, social, and governance. And everything, when, when, when that whole thing started, there was a, a few firms that did it. There was a lady named Domini. She had a social uh, responsibility index. And only a handful of firms made the cut. So back then, it was really an outlier, and firms that invested that way had tremendous outperformance because, you know, there was a lot of money that went into a very small space, and it, it blew up returns. It was somewhat arbitrary, or at least deemed to be somewhat arbitrary, in terms of how you got on the list. Today, they want to paint everybody that way. The biggest proponent, of course, is uh, Larry Fink, the um, CEO of BlackRock. Uh, my thought is when you become the market, you will perform like the market. You're not going to do any better or worse. But um, independent thinking I'll, I'll put it this way. At a cocktail party or a gathering, are you the person that goes for a conversation with the people that are the most socially uh, adroit and successful and the ones that everybody wants to talk to, or do you go talk to somebody who's off on the edge, doesn't have anybody to talk to, I like to go talk to those people. The reason being, I feel like I'm going to get a real story with that person. And I like real stories. I don't like fake ones. That's just me. Yeah. Um, bringing this back to uh, where we are, you know, if somebody's getting close to retirement or thinking about retirement, um, you have to go into it with a, a mindset that things can change and they will change. Markets will go up, markets will go down. Um, and you need to have that conversation with your advisor. Uh, little plug, if you don't have an advisor, you call us. Um, but no, you need to have that. If you don't have us, you don't have an advisor. There you go. I like that. Um, nah. <laughs> uh, you need to have that conversation. Um, where is the flexibility? Uh, what kind of flexibility can you have? 
Um, and you need to have uh, trust in that person, in that firm. Um, and <clears throat> the investment approach uh, is very important. And, and specifically the investment process. Um, the process needs to be able to they, – they should be able to clearly articulate what the process is. Uh, and there are a bunch of – I mean, one of the – the points that they're making in this in this Jason Zweig Zweig article is it, 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 well, I won't go into exactly. It, it's basically in any kind of a market environment, you're going to have <coughs> quote unquote new ideas come about, new spending plans, quote unquote new dollar cost averaging plans, all these different things that come and go depending on what's going on in the market. You need to have a plan <clears throat> that can adjust when it's necessary, um, but something that's easy to understand and easy to stick with. I, I had a hard time understanding the concept in this. Um, you know, it, it's, it's dollar cost averaging on steroids. When the market's up, you put in less. When it's down, you put in more. It's very complex and kind of convoluted. Yeah, so it's dollar cost averaging, somewhat price adjusted. Exactly. It, that kind of an approach, it, it, it can work. But remember, there's only a, there's, if things start ultimately go up. That's right. But remember, we're dealing with a human element here, too. Right. So theoretically, things can work. But is it something that you that you as the participant understand and can adhere to and go along with? Because if if it can be the best plan in the world, something like this, but if you can't adhere to it, it doesn't do any good. No good. So it's like a workout plan. It's like an exercise yeah, plan, exactly, or an eating plan, which I've failed on numerous. So the the bottom line is, you know, I, I like food. I like if it if this tastes good. Two of them would taste better, you know. <laughs> so that that's kind of been my deal. As I opposed mean, to, as opposed to, you have the first when, one, you know and, what it and tastes like. When I was like. nineteen years old, it worked. So <laughs> the thing of it is, things change. You have to, you have to, you have to modify your actions. Yeah, you have to change your actions. Right. You know that is painful, but it's necessary if you really want to keep living. Some people don't. I want to keep living. I want to keep going. I want to keep experiencing new things. I want to stay alive. If I st if I th if I do my investing right, I'll get to come back another day. I can pay for my oatmeal. <laughs> no, I don't even eat that anymore. I mean, who's going to eat oatmeal without brown sugar? You know, come on. Not me. What's wrong with brown sugar? No, I'm saying it's like I can eat it. I might as well be eating uh, drywall paste. <laughs> Whatever. So, so the bottom line is, if you want longevity, you're going to need money to help pay for your expenses as you live longer. That's where we come in. We'd love to talk to you about your portfolio. You can call us at 859-233-0400. Our website is dupreefinancial.com, and the podcast of all of the radio shows are housed there as well. We appreciate you listening. You've been listening to the Tom Dupree Show with the Darsh Meshroom, Mike Johnson, and Tom Dupree. 
We will talk to you next week.